Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ingrid Cochran, and this is History, Culture, Trauma. We are talking to a fabulous guest today, Dr. Sandra Bloom. And we are also uh, still celebrating Women's History Month. Uh, I do have a bit of announcement. Today, we have a new co-host, um, Mr. Matthew Portel. Matthew, please uh, give our audience uh, an introduction to yourself. Tell us, um, tell us anything special that we need to know about you besides being the new director of Communities for Paces Connection. Well, that, that is the very exciting news, is that I get to be a part of this amazing organization, PACES. Uh, I have served about 50, well, just over 15 years in education, uh, in the field of edu education as a teacher, as a mentor, uh, as an administrator, and I have been ingrained in, in this work for several years after I realized that um, the paradigm of how we operate at the education field needed to change based off of Pace's science. So I am so glad to be here uh, and so glad to be co-hosting with you and to have such an amazing guest as one of the first people I get to talk to um, on this podcast. Yes, yes, this is a very exciting um, interview and discussion that we'll have. Um, and so without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Sandra Bloom. Um, she is... Uh, 40 years in this work um, and is specifically traumatic stress studies. Uh, she's also the founder and executive director of the sanctuary programs, which are inpatient um, psychiatric programs for the treatment of trauma related emotional disorders. Uh, and so, and it's definitely a long list of accolades uh, in her bio that you can see on our, on our, um, on our page, our series page, but I want to give it over to Dr. Bloom to introduce herself to our audience. Thank you, Ingrid. Hi, everybody. Um, what I do now is I'm Associate Professor of Health Management and Policy at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I'm a psychiatrist by training. And uh, as Ingrid was indicating, I have an inpatient unit for trauma survivors, which I'll tell you more about. Thank you so much, Dr. Bloom. Um, Matthew has um, a bunch of questions for you. We're really excited to, to know more about your work and also how you see yourself in the movement. And then of course, you know where the movement is going. I know that there are several ways that we connect when um, Paces Connections founder, uh, Jane Stevens suggested that you would be a great fit for this podcast. Um, one of the things that she pointed out was that we had a lot in common in the way that we saw trauma. So I'm also uh, a psychology professor and uh, I see trauma and also positive uh, childhood experiences um, as really a driver for human evolution. And she said that we shared that, that background. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, but I'm going to hand it over to Matthew to really kind of dig deep and ask some questions that will give our audience um, a really good understanding of your legacy in this movement. So I think that this question is an imperative question, and I think it's been asked to every guest so far, but what is your story? How did you come into this work? And I think this is something that 
all of us have that experience of how did we become uh, so interested in paces and trauma-informed work. So what is what is your story? Well, I got to start that story, I think, by talking a little bit about readiness. Um, I was a, training as a psychiatrist in the 1970s, but I actually started out as a mental health tech um, in college. So I made money to, for college. And this was a very different era for psychiatry than the, than the one currently. So it was an era of social and political activism on the part of the people who were my mentors. So they were involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, women's liberation, gay liberation. And in psychiatry, that was represented by a very different way of understanding that work. And it was called social psychiatry, preventative and radical psychiatry, the community mental health movement, um, the democratic therapeutic community, which really influenced me. This was, this was my context for learning about my professional responsibility. And it was when our, my world was not about um, behavioral health, it was still mental health. And it wasn't all about medications. It wasn't about biological psychiatry yet. So when I got out of my residency in 1978. And in 1980, I started a, I got together with some friends and social worker and a clinical nurse specialist and a psychodramatist. And we turned a med surge unit into a psychiatric unit in a small community hospital about an hour north of Philadelphia in a community that was changing from being a, a farming community, pretty rural, to becoming more suburban, semi-rural and, and suburban. Um, and there was no diversity. It was all, all white. Um, but that was where we had the opportunity to do this amazing thing and start our own psychiatric unit. And it was, we did a lot of expressive therapies, a lot of group work. It was an open, voluntary psychiatric unit, so nobody was locked up. Nobody was put into restraints. And around 1985, we all started having these remarkable experiences with individual patients that we were working with. They all had these horrible experiences in childhood all different kinds of experiences, a lot of sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect, but a lot of other bad things. And we didn't know what to do with that information. And it was just, it was really, each one of us had our signature, you know, our, our remarkable person who was our patient, who taught us this was really important. But we didn't know what we didn't know what it meant. We didn't know what to do about it. I um, attended a week-long workshop with Judith Herman and Bessel van der Kolk around 85, 86. And I came back from that with a completely changed gestalt. Uh, they had brought together all the knowledge up to that time on Holocaust survivors and disaster victims and Vietnam vets. Because remember, there's a brand new field. Uh, and it, I 
made up slides and from what they had talked about and gave my whole team a day and we just focused on this and and then we all started asking different questions of everybody and lo and behold we found out that pretty much everybody that came into our inpatient unit had really bad things happen to them when they were children and we they started teaching us really what what that meant developmentally what that had done to them over time and in around 1991 we were sitting in a team meeting together so we were now six years into this and we were trying to figure out what had happened to us what we had radically changed but how do you put that into words all of us nursing staff you know there are probably 20 of us around the table and my friend joe fotorero said well you know we've stopped asking people what's wrong with them and now we ask what happened to them and that's changed everything and we went yay joe yes exactly that's exactly what's happened and that as you probably know has become like a, a meme um it's 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 in constant use because it's so helpful um in 1997 i wrote my first book on what we were experiencing really on it was really the first book to really be about the inpatient treatment of in a trauma-informed way and it was called creating sanctuary because by then we were calling our program the sanctuary okay so 1998 the first report on the aces study comes out so up until now it was really clear to me that the cause, the major cause of mental health problems that I had been learning how to treat for a long time actually had begun in childhood. And here was evidence. Here was capital S science. Uh, it was the same year I had become president of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. And so what you do when you're the president of the ISDSS is you have to formulate the annual conference. So my program director and I um, knew about the study and we got in touch with Rob Anda and we invited Rob to come be a presenter at our international conference. I have to, I haven't asked Rob about this, but it might have been his first national or international platform for the study um and and it was just you know oh my god everybody has to know about this because in order to get through to a lot of people in our culture who can make a difference it has to be about evidence and it has to be about science my own individual experience of my patients getting better who had never gotten better before <laughs> that doesn't really count um, what counts is the science. So I started teaching it to anybody that would listen. And uh, so I started talking a lot to a lot of different people. I certainly am very proud of the fact I brought ACES to Philadelphia. And we started then an ACES task force at some point. We had moved. I'll tell you more about that later. We had moved our program and now we were in the city. And um, 
we started NACES task force to bring people together from all the different social service, educational institutions, mental health, healthcare, anybody that could come um, to really share and start thinking as a community about what this meant because we knew already that we had a highly traumatized community. And then out of that task force, um, some of my colleagues did the Philadelphia ACEs study, which became then the, the urban ACEs. Um, meantime for me, what had become really evident was that virtually every problem that I had learned to treat had actually been preventable. And that's how I ended up in the profession that does its very best to prevent problems, as we've seen in the last two years, public health. So that felt for me to be a very comfortable place to be because uh, ACEs was having such a huge impact on how I understood the world. So that's what, uh, in terms of my journey with ACEs, that's what I do now. I teach um, at the Dornsleife School of Public Health, uh, undergrads and graduate students. Uh, and I teach them about adversity and trauma in every way that I can. And I think you have alluded, and if and if anyone hasn't already picked up, you have left and are leaving a legacy, right? And this is Women's History Month, and you are, whether you want to be or not, you are a part of this historical work, right? You have been there and since the forefront. So what is the legacy you are hoping to leave? When you, when you step out and you say, this is what I want to leave, what is that legacy? My own experience um, with organizational stress was significant because, as I said, we started this program in 1980 and we ran it for 20 years and in 2001 had to close it. And in that time, we had had to move the program four times because of systemic changes over which I had absolutely no control. Care in the country was mattering less and the bottom line mattered a whole lot more. And we fought that tide that was overtaking mental health service delivery for 20 years. We just couldn't do it anymore. We could do it with very few staff. We just could not do the work of trying to help people restore their lives with no staff. And so I wrote Destroying Sanctuary in 2010, which is about organizational stress. And people at conferences, when I talk about it, would come up to me and they would, they would go, they would look on either side of themselves to make sure nobody else was listening. And then they get closer to me and they go, how do you know where I work? And I go, it isn't just where you work. It's where everybody works. So I hope that my contribution will have been directing attention to the organizational problems that have arisen in our system, secondary to really serious contradictions and conflicts around an economic model of caregiving where productivity and efficiency 
are applied to what I've called the science of suffering in ways that are really incredibly destructive for delivering services. And it's having a devastating impact on everybody. And then I hope that uh, a legacy I pass on is describing what it really takes to create trauma-informed systems, not that it's not minor readjustment, that this is more like altering DNA. Um, my first edition of that was the sanctuary model. And my latest one is, is called creating presence. So I I'm keep trying to define and redefine what it really takes. And then I do a lot about describing and emphasizing the profound paradigm shift and what that what in the world that means for everybody. So I'm trying to get underneath the details and see the basic assumptions and the philosophical and economic and social and religious problems that have led us down some very unfruitful paths as a whole species. And as I, it's the way my mind works. I've always been interested in looking at the big picture, not the details, and asking questions about how and why the human species has ended up in the messes we're in. No other species treats its offspring the way we do. No other species goes to war and massacres its own species. No other sentient species enslaves other people of its kind. So what in the world happened to us as a whole species? Um, and I, I'm, I'm still working on that. <laughs> That's part of the, the big picture stuff that I hope I'll do more on and I'll have time to do more work around and pass that legacy on as well. Well, I think you're hitting a lot of the points. This is the, the history, culture, and trauma podcast. And I think what you were just saying is this is a long history of us as human beings, right? And us as cultural, having different cultural experiences, but yet it's, this is ingrained into who we are as a human species and the evolution that, that we have become. And I can see that it isn't getting any better. Do you see it getting better? And, and what do you see as barriers to why it isn't getting be better? Really interesting, very big question, Matthew. I, um, I think it, 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 that the only way to think about it is in evolutionary terms, right? Really long. I, I spent a lot of my um, pandemic time kind of asking, trying to find answers for those questions. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of began for me with when George, the George Floyd murder happened. And, you know, that compelled all of us, I think, to, to be asking a lot of questions about what, what, why? <laughs> Why, why do we, uh, yeah, I know about xenophobia and all that, but really, come on, it's time to get over this. We're all one species. So why do we do these things? Why do white people, wherever we've gone, why do we do these terrible things to other human beings? And it, it looked to me like reenactment behavior. So 
reenactment is so fundamental to trauma. And that's, you know, part of what I learned is that we repeat the past. But I didn't know about deep history of my of my own culture. And I'm really interested in the notion of cultural safety, how you how from New Zealand, how you have to become an expert in your own culture. You can't be an expert in somebody else's, right? And so I started reading this guy from Harvard who wrote the, a book called The Weirdest People in the World. Now, he didn't talk about trauma, but boy, I read it with my trauma lenses on. And I went, OMG. Um, because what he talks about is the systematic dismantling of all of the European tribal cultures. Now, we're talking back, you know, way, way back. And I went, okay, that's where it started. There's the disrupted attachment. There we know what happens with disrupted attachment. We know what happens with collective trauma. And then I started, and that led me to some other work around what might have gotten this started. And this is related to your question about hope and real concern. What might have gotten it started, according to some interesting work that's been done, is because we all, all, all people apparently lived for 99% of human history in more or less egalitarian societies. So you have to then ask, there's no evidence of warfare between 6,000 and 4,000 BC. It didn't exist. So what happened? Well, one proposal that seems to carry some evidence along with it is that it was climate change that the in the Fertile Crescent, the lands of milk and honey be turned into deserts and it created a warrior culture. And once one group of people take on a aggressive position, then all of their neighbors have to become at least as aggressive if they're not going to be destroyed. So um, it it went, oh my God. And that and the idea is that that's when patriarchy, social inequality, and war began. And it's been running since then. So what's the the future for us if we don't get a grip on this? Uh, it's not pretty. You can we can look at what's happening today in the in Ukraine, right? So and I think why the aces work is so important is that it reconnects children and adults. You know, they are treated now in our systems like they're separate species. Like, like somehow, you know, we ignore adolescence and then somehow children become adults, but there's no relationship. It's like, it doesn't matter what you do a kid, they should get themselves together and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Well, we now know that's nonsense. That is just simply mythology. And I think that's why ACEs is so important because unless we can do better with our children, we're gonna keep creating people who are going to be reenact their victimization and reenact their persecution on other people. I mean, that that is the story of the world, of world history. Um, so, that's what I think is so critical about these questions is, you know, how do we, how do we get there? 
how do we how do we get enough knowledge out to the public that it raises the level of child care? How do we get that out to Congress so they actually see that it's in everybody's best interest, whether they're conservative or liberal, to fund things like child care and parents being able to stay with their kids and having enough money to, you know, the agenda that, that President Biden is trying to get in play. And there is, there, you know, opposition, that doesn't exist. That I'm being facetious there, and I'm being very sarcastic. But, and, and I think about this quote from Maya Angelou that says, we know what we, we know, we do what we know. And when we know better, we do better. But I feel that we, we are not even knowing better right now. I think there is a subset of people and groups of people who do know better. But as a culture-wide, I feel like we don't know better yet we're still looking at historical context and it's getting progressively harder to get people to understand and know better and i think what you're saying is it's it got it's got me fired up to be quite honest because it's like what can we do because right. now we negate science right science science is it's it's whatever people negate it right even if we have the proof people don't want to utilize that and so i, I think having shows like this, having conversations like we're having and on a bigger scale is how that is going to move forward. And you've been at the forefront of this. You've been at the forefront of this movement where, you know, mental health that was looked at completely different when you started this work. And I think that as we move forward, it's only going to become more advanced. We're only going to understand the brain more that and how malleable it is and the impact of, of not just those big T traumas, but those events that alter us as human beings, as a collective, like, I don't know, a pandemic maybe, right? <laughs> How this is going right. to impact us on a long-term basis. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think those are such critical questions because it's really going to determine our future and the hardest part I think about it and the thing that really freaks people out and that they can't let themselves get to is the C word. It's capitalism. <laughs> and nobody wants to touch that our economic system as it's currently defined has become cancerous it's a malignancy yeah. and it, it but because i think about organizations and in parallel process all the levels of the social hierarchy as living things and just like we can as individuals develop a, a, a cell gets out of control and then it spreads and you get more and more cells that are out of control that's a cancer. And our system has become out of control. It's just completely out of control. And everybody is suffering from it. The, even the very, very wealthy, they still have to live in an interconnected world with everybody else. We've seen from the pandemic what happens when the supply chain breaks, right? 
when one part way over there stops working, people die, there's nobody to do the jobs, and all and everybody suffers as a result. We've never had that experience before. We've had it now. Yeah. And so we have to get to the structural aspects of this. We have to be able to engage. I am in no way saying that communism is a good idea. That is the other C word, right? But that is in in the culture, those are the only two possibilities. If you're not a capitalist, the way it's defined today, then you are a socialist slash communist. And what I'm saying is that it's time in America for us to define what we think our capitalism should be, what it should be. And it won't be what it looks like today, where a very, very tiny piece of people really get to enslave in many ways millions of people who then don't even have enough money to put food on the table for their children. That it can't go on this way. It can't. It, you know, I'll, I'll be dead probably long before it changes, but it can't go on the way it is. So something has to give, which means we have to have really difficult conversations about what I just did, the C word, the C words. We have to. We can't go on pretending that we just juggle this, fix this, manipulate that. Get, and everything will be okay. No, there's, it's just like trying to deal with racism without dealing with structural racism. You, it can't, you can't do it. And the good news and is, Sandy, is you're in great company with people who want to have that conversation. <laughs> and I think taking a break right now would be great so we can come <laughs> back with all of this energy because I can tell you one person that I'm most comfortable talking about these things with, and that's Ingrid. Um, because she, she brings, she, she makes my brain spin in such ways that makes me a better human. And just like talking to you, Sandy, I feel like after the break, it is going to be on fire. Yes. Thank you, Matthew. We're going to go to a break and we're going to come back with Dr. Bloom uh, to continue this very exciting conversation. And yes, I do definitely appreciate the things that you've brought up because here at Paces Connection, we are not afraid of the C words. So Please join us after the break. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. Um, We just took a break from a very exciting conversation. Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Sandra Bloom, and we were really talking about structural issues. And I think it's a good reflection uh, of of several things. First, the direction that Pace's Connection is moving in currently. And also, it really resonates with most people as we are beginning to see that the things that we're doing, especially in this country, uh, and definitely worldwide, but especially in this country, the things that we're doing are not working. And so uh, what does it look like to have a real impact when it comes to you know structural issues like racism and poverty? And of course, the things that the Philadelphia study really highlighted, which is that beyond those initial um, 10 ACEs, that racism, poverty, and other structural issues um, are definitely at play and that they would be considered adversity um, and that we can't leave them out in our discussions around adversity. So um, we, you brought up, uh, Dr. Bloom, you brought up capitalism um, before uh, and, and more importantly, you brought up our inability currently to be able to live in the gray area. So if you're not, if you're not a capitalist and you're a communist, there's no in-between. Uh, and this is, a, this is, I think, a reflection of a trauma response, a collective trauma response to the system that we've created that has only worked for so few, and, um, but, but still also giving the promise of, um, you know, the way that we see America as the, the land of the free while we have uh, history and are being rooted in slavery. And, of course, the, um, our ability to say that in, in, in this country we can achieve anything that we want, the American dream, while so many are suffering. And so um, having both groups together in such close proximity really highlights, you know, those structural issues. And um, while, while then we have these beliefs that are really contradictory to the reality, um, which is kind of gaslighting our children on top of that. So I do wanna jump back into this conversation. Um, and so I'll give it over to you, Matt, to, to think through what does it mean for us to move forward in this space? Yeah, and I think structurally, right? Let's get back to that, uh, Sandy, because that is the key, right? And you went back to history before we even understood conflict, right? And then this shift happened and we continue to see this throughout history. So what is the systematic pieces? What is those big picture pieces that you see that we've got to start moving towards? Well, one really big one I think we have to move towards is um, much more democracy. Many, 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 many more attempts to do participatory, true participatory processes in the home, at schools, in all schools, in the workplace, everywhere. We need that 
because there's no other way that we can begin addressing the cognitive, the complex problems we've created. There's this thing, there's a author, um, I'm blocking right now on her name. Um, she wrote an amazing book where she studied the way cultures have collapsed. And she describes the um, co a cognitive threshold and the signs of a cognitive threshold um, are um, gridlock is one big one. And another one is the substitution of beliefs for facts. And she looked at many historical civilizations when they were crumbling and saw that they reached their cognitive threshold, which she defined as when a civilization progresses so much that it creates complex problems that it no longer has the complex abilities to fix. And that's bingo right where we are, right? We just do not have the ability to deal with complexity. I think that's what's freaking so many otherwise completely stained people out is they, they don't know how to fix it. So they want to they, you know, some people will deny that the problems, some people will resist it. Some, you know, people do all different things defensively as individuals to deal with being, feeling overwhelmed. So I think we've reached as a species, we've reached our cognitive threshold, certainly as our civilization, we're, we're there, we're right on it. And the only way out of it that I can see is having more participation that is diverse, where people feel safe, where there are true partnerships, where there is an expectation that people are going to manage their emotions, they're going to be emotionally intelligent, they're going to sit within the gray zone. That you just that that was just described, right? Sit right there with the ambiguity and the, the confusion of not knowing exactly what to do next. But to do that, and and I think democracy is so important because I think it is an antidote to trauma. I think that if you, let's say you're, we're talking about children, if you put them into environments where the, the way the environment is structured is to be democratic, then what do those children have to learn? They have to learn how to use words instead of actions. They have to learn how to manage their emotions. They have to learn how to negotiate and compromise. They have to learn to listen to many different points of view and try to integrate them. Those are what has to happen for traumatized people to heal. So I think about this thing of democracy, which I'm now calling biocracy when it's when it is applied to organizations as being critical if we're going to move forward, that it's part of our evolutionary journey, that America is supposed to be the model of democratic processes. OMG, that is not. We can't be proud of ourselves right now. We're even trying to restrict people's ability to vote. 
I mean, it's it's going in the wrong direction, and it needs to be more, much more true democratic processes. So I want to tell you a little bit about, about this notion of biocracy. It's a word, Walter Cannon was the head of physiology at Harvard in the, for like 40 years, in the 1940s. He became the president of the American Academy of Science. And he gave an address in New York City in 1940. Now, remember where we were in 1940. It was going to be a year and we would be in World War II. And he said, the society, our society should be based on um, the human body. It should be a biocracy. And I read that. And he was talking about it being a democracy and never allowing dictatorship because dictatorship is like cancer, right? So I read that and I went, yeah, that's the word I've been looking for to talk about our systems as being alive. That means they can develop a conscience. That means values are really important. Our moral development is important and it means they can evolve. So I see that as being a real hopeful antidote to where we are now, to really understanding that we're talking about living systems and we're talking about a threat to all life on the planet. <laughs> no, no minor threats. We're talking about making decisions now that are going to determine whether life is going to continue to exist. Well, I think that's pretty important. What do you see as your next step? I mean, it sounds like you're already kind of thinking about that next step with what you just said, but what is your next step? And then, cause we did, you did kind of talk about the, the movement in general, the paces, the trauma informed movement, but what about you? Well, I've, um, I released recently an online organizational model and it's called creating presence. And we use presence as an acronym for partnership and power, reverence and restoration, emotional wisdom and empathy, safety and social responsibility, embodiment and enactment, nature and nurture, culture and complexity, emergence and evolution. Gives me a chance to think about research and talk about pretty much everything, <laughs> which, is, which is, you know, what I like to do. So we're um, already training, programs are already have started the coursework. And as we go along, as we get more programs further along, because it takes about 18 months, um, we want to develop a community of practice so that there's more interconnectedness and collaboration between and among organizations who are really committing themselves to becoming trauma-informed. So that's part of my work in the future or worse in the present and the future. And then I'm chairing um, CTIP, which is the campaign for trauma-informed policy and practice. And our work really is to, we formed as a volunteer organization to inform and advocate for public policies uh, and laws at every level, federal, state, tribal, local, um, statewide, uh, that 
really incorporate ACEs science and all that we know about trauma into their policies and in the national sense into laws. So that means you have to educate members of Congress and their more even their staff, very importantly. So that's what we do in CTIP and that's part of you know continuing my future for at least for now. And then I want to get back to writing. I hope I have another book in me, particularly about the whole idea about what is a healthy biocratic organization? What is a living organization? How do we even think about that? Um, and, I, and then that enables me to focus on the pitch I'm making about democracy as an antidote to adversity and trauma. And that's for everybody, because we know that most people will have a significant ACEs exposure and a trauma exposure sometime in their life. So it's not just it's not just about the mental health service. It really has to be about everybody. And then I'm going to go on teaching undergraduates and grad, graduate students at my school. Oh yeah. That's really fun. I I I can definitely see how it's very important to stay connected to young people going through the academic space. Um, future practitioners. So I, that definitely resonates with me. And this conversation as a whole has definitely um, helped me to, you know, again, see the big picture. I'm always, I can get lost in the details and especially think about individual ACEs, um, which our followers at PACES Connection and, and also just the people in the, in the field in general, we, we are really good with individual ACEs. We know the answers there. And so I agree the the future is around addressing structural issues. And so one thing that stood out to me and I wanted to ask is um, when we think about democracy, especially kind of on the world stage, it is often used as a tool and say that we're spreading democracy and often to black and brown countries is the, is the guise to um, be more involved in their in their politics and decision making, or even at at worst, uh, take advantage of the resources that they have. What do you think about that, and, and how is that connected to our our movement in in paces and um, specifically aces? Yeah, I I think you it's it's a contradiction in terms to think you can impose democracy. It just doesn't make any sense. So, so you know, it would be a whole lot better if we paid attention to really having one and really practicing it here. And if we really had democratic homes, democratic schools, democratic workplaces, and a democratic governments, real, really, where people really participated, then we, we could be a model that other places would want to replicate because it's successful. People aren't stupid around the world. They want, they want to live a good life. They want to feed their kids. They want to, you know, and, but other circumstances get in the way. So I think it would be a lot better for us to pay attention to our own inadequacies um, and try to, to build and build structures that are much healthier um, for living beings. Uh, and then 
people are going to want to do it. Other people want to do it. It's, it is important that other countries become more democratic because it's been proven that the more democratic a country is, the less likely it is to go to war with anybody else. So there's a, a, a really intimate relationship between uh, aggression across nations um, and and their democratic forms of government. So that's a part of why I think it's so important is that, but you can't, pe people get that you're living contradictions. And, you know, when we're trying to restrict voting rights and then while telling somebody else that they have to vote, well, wait a minute, that's completely hypocritical. And human beings are pretty sensitive to hypocrisy. I really think that what gave the civil rights movement its legs is that it was televised and um, America could not be the beacon of, of democracy while on television you can see uh, the aggression that was displayed towards African-Americans. So I also want to um, take some time to talk through a couple of things that, that have come up in this conversation that I thought was very uh, relevant. I love the word by Biocracy. Uh, Biocracy. So, yeah, I think. <laughs> yes, I think that is is definitely the way that we should structure our world to, to center around the human body, and um, which would then, of course, mean that as we experience um, adversity and anything that really causes the body like harm over time, epigenetic changes that we are uh, we're conscious of that. Um, I was working with some students at Vanderbilt. I teach some health equity courses and do, and do health equity um, um, consulting. And they had um, medical students that were very interested in what it would mean to engage in kind of um, the work of repairing genetic um, damage or epigenetic damage for people who had experienced historical trauma, which is what brought me to the field of bases. Um, what do you think about that? I thought that was very interesting that these medical students came to that after I spoke with them about epigenetics and historical trauma. Well, I think it's wonderful that you did get a chance to talk to the medical students about it. I think trauma-informed approaches will gradually infiltrate uh, medicine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard uh, with everything else that they get piled on top of them to when they're and if their mentors don't actually you know walk the talk but i think it's great that they were asking the questions and then the question of how you change the epigenetic impact we have to expose people to something else <laughs> that's how it happened and that's the whole point about epigenetics is that it's changeable right it's not our dna it's the markers on the dna so that you can change that alter that even in a generation, we think. So it is entirely possible. It's a really very positive um, aspect of healing and recovery, right? Is that we may, in, in really working on creating healthier families, we may dramatically change the impact of, on children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So, because with each generation as healing occurs, there's going to be more healing. And that's, you know, it's also the importance, I think, of thinking about all of these 
uh, layers of our culture as alive is that living bodies heal. They can heal, they can recover. And so can our organizations. Even if you're working in a really, really dysfunctional place, people often go, it's hopeless. There's just no way this can get any better. And that's just not true if you use a, a, a living systems idea that if as long as, until you're dead, <laughs> there's, there's always hope. And always we ain't hope. dead yet. Yes, thank you so much. And that makes me think about, you know, all the things that we've talked about, about how positive experiences really are the cure, especially for those who experience generational and historical trauma and collective collective trauma that like we're in now with this pandemic. Um, Matthew, I want to give you some space before we close out to say any last words and definitely um, also to Dr. Bloom for thank you so much for joining us. So, you know, I can't, I can't separate myself from my educational experience. And so I, everything that I hear you say, I'm thinking this is the opposite of what's happening in education right now, that it is becoming where the body is not the center, right? Not even the brain, to be quite honest, because I don't know if you know, you can't disconnect them, right? We know that through (laughs) pace of science, right? But that's all I can think about is how do we as a society and looking at education from a body brain perspective, not just for the kids, but for the adults, not just the adults in the building, but for the families outside of the building. So that's what, that's what you have swirling around in my brain. And I will be processing that more. Dr. Dr. Bloom, what, what, what do you want to leave us with? What's the last thought you want to want to drop to us? I think uh, the last thought, the most important thought probably is that um, we, we have to recognize that we are all interconnected. That is what living systems are all about. Everything is connected to everything else. And that is a very different point of view in a culture that is so individualistic. But we know from basic physics and biology that that is truth. Everything is connected to everything else. And so we, we need to, every individual has to see how, what can I do? What is my mission that I can do on this planet during the time I have to make this world a better place? That is the perfect closing for Pace's Connection. Everything is connected. Thank you so much, Dr. Bloom, and thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Ingrid. Thanks, you, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.